always a pleasure to welcome into the program Chris Carlson, Syracuse.com with us here. How are you, sir? Hey, Brent. I'm doing okay. It's nice to it's nice to still be dreaming about football. Yes, it is. I don't know if we're kicking the can down the road more or we're, we're heading towards a world here where maybe they can figure this out. So you wrote a story about Syracuse University generally, Chris, which certainly pulls in athletes here because they're you know a prominent member of the university community right now and who's actually on campus. So for those who didn't read that story, they should. But tell us about testing, early rounds of testing, and, and what Syracuse found. Yep, so Syracuse is it's starting off by doing pooled saliva testing. Um, that means putting students in groups of like 15 to 20, um, taking a swab from all of them. They all get mixed up in some sort of fancy machine. Um, and if there's a positive test among those 15 or 20, it'll tell you. Um, and, you know, all those people then have to take an individual test. Um, as part of its moving weekend, um, for that first group of kind of 400 freshmen, um, they're all from hot states that are quarantining. Syracuse tested all those people that are quarantining, and they tested all the school's athletes in a, in a big batch. Um, that's something like 800 students, and it didn't find any positives among those students. So that means a couple things. Um, the bubble and Syracuse's athletic program, you know, most of those athletes have been in at least somewhat of a bubble. Here in central New York, that has worked out really well. Um, we've seen that that's worked out well for a lot of other sports. The bubble works. Um, the fact that Syracuse had all those hot states come in, now they were tested when they were home. Um, five kids tested positive. They were stopped from ever coming to central New York. The rest of the kids tested negative. Um, you know, there was a high percentage that tested positive at home, but it's good that none of them got to central New York. That is good for Syracuse's campus. Now, the problem is if that 1% of students that tested positive, those are from hot states. So Syracuse is traveling to those states at some point during the football season. Right. So I don't think the issue is whether Syracuse has things under control. They do. The question is whether Clemson's campus, uh, you know, the campus is in Florida, the, Car- the campus is in, in Carolinas, in Virginia. The question is whether those schools will have their COVID situation under control enough to kind of play a college football season and for Syracuse to feel comfortable sending its athletes to those places. The other big concern that's out there, Chris, uh, as you and I put our doctor hats on here on the radio, is myocarditis, I believe is how you pronounce that. It's the heart condition, enlarged heart condition. The Big Ten says they found 10 student athletes that have it. There's a player at Houston that says he has it. And it's as a result of, in this case, COVID, but it can result from viral infections generally. So what you're seeing is testing is different, and those long-term effects, those things that can affect athletes that we just don't know enough about right now. That's pretty much what the Big Ten and the Pac-12 said, right? Like, we don't know enough about this, so therefore we can't play. That was a big part of it. They also had, I think, you know, at least the Pac-12 mentioned concerns about testing whether they had enough and whether they could do enough testing to keep it safe. Um, but, but the heart condition, you know, it, it's obviously we've just started kind of talking about the connection um, between coronavirus and myocarditis, which means we've probably just started exploring that connection scientifically. We don't have a great idea of what percentage of athletes that get coronavirus have this heart condition um, because I don't think they've been looking for it in every single athlete, in, in every single athlete. Um, you know, 
So I think that is probably the worry. You know, is every athlete going to get it, or, or is it a small percentage? Is it something that goes away um, very quickly um, after the coronavirus, or does it linger uh, for a long time? We haven't looked at that, um, is my understanding. You know, the coronavirus is a new virus. We just don't know. That's the problem, is we don't know. And as we stand here, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, that scared them off. But the ACC, the Big 12, and the SEC, they keep looking around saying, no, we're, we're going to keep uh, forging ahead here. Now, I asked this question in my column today. I've posted on the radio, and I want to put it to you. And I, I want to be careful about it. I don't want to point fingers at anybody. But I think a question you got to ask yourself is, are these decision makers seeking out what they need to hear or what they want to hear at this point? Yeah, I mean, I... My, I just think it's all a matter of risk tolerance. And what one person thinks is risky, one person might not. I mean, I love whitewater rafting. That might sound really, really scary to people. I don't like skydiving. That, that might not be a risk for some people. Um, you know, and different doctors, different medical advisors, different schools, different conferences can all be comfortable with different levels of, of risk. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean anybody's wrong or, or, or anybody's right. I mean, in hindsight, it will. <laughs> you know, someone's right. going to be wrong and somebody's going to be right. Um, but right now, there's no like obvious answer where people are, are picking the right one and the wrong one. Um, they're all sort of trying to navigate it the, the best they can. Chris, as you wrote about this week, Syracuse Chancellor Ken Severud has a very big role in all this. I think he would anyway as a college president, but he is the new president of the board of directors in the ACC. Well, he's going to get a collective opinion here, certainly. Is it ultimately his call on the ACC pulling the plug here? Of course, John Swafford, you know, pulls the, you know, pushes the button, I should say, and makes the decision. But Ken Severud's in a very prominent position here in the decision-making of whether the ACC goes forward or not. So I actually disagree with that. John Swafford does not make the decision. The 15 presidents make the decision, and they tell John Swafford what his decision ah, will be. There you go. Uh, you know, John, they're, they're John Swafford's bosses, um, those 15 school presidents. Um, and then John has to go out and defend whatever they decide that, that their choice is. That, that's what John gets paid a lot of money for, so that the school presidents don't have to do that part. Um, Great gig. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. It's a, you know, it's like Mark Emmert. You know, Mark Emmert's just doing what the schools <laughs> want, want him to do. He just has to, you know, take the abuse a couple times a year. Um, you know, so, so, Ken, so Ken Severud is one of kind of 15 school presidents that are ultimately going to decide to this. They're, they're going to take the medical advice. Of, they're going to take medical advice, right? They're going to take legal advice to determine kind of how much liability is involved. Um, you know, and they're going to figure out what that means. Um, Ken Severub is a lawyer, which means he's in good position to figure out kind of the liability part of this um, and understand that. Um, the NCAA is making a lot of legal arguments about amateurism, um, the idea that you're throwing athletes out there, asking them to take on more risk and, you know, not get paid for it. Um, we've talked about the bubble. Can you make a bubble with amateur athletes, or, or does that not work with amateurism? You know, you know, Ken Severud is is a is well equipped to kind of navigate those issues 
Um, he hasn't shared those opinions on that a lot with us locally, uh, and it'll be interesting to see if that kind of changes after this. Uh, it would be fun to hear his thinking. Absolutely, I, I, and certainly there's a part of this that stays behind the scenes until they ultimately make the decision. I think the Pac-12 did a much better job explaining itself than the Big Ten did yesterday, and they've got a new commissioner. Like you said, the commissioner gets put out there to take the hits on this. So once the ACC ultimately makes their decision, I'll be as curious as anybody what they say and what their thought process was, and and Severo had a big role in that. Now, surprise is not the word I'm going to use here, Chris, but it has been interesting to see the flaws in the process here. You have covered NCAA issues. I've covered NCAA issues, so... Surprise is nowhere near the word I'm going to go towards, but it still is startling to me in a way that they've had five months to figure out something, and here we are. Being fair about the fluid situation about the coronavirus in different parts of the country, what we don't know, all that stuff, but I'm watching this play out and like, really? You've had five months to think about this, and it, it's, it, it feels like you kind of wake up and say, what are we going to do today? That that is, you know, and it's hard to know what's completely true and what's not because so many, everybody's a source, right? And nobody's sticking their name by anything. Um, but to hear athletic directors and, and presidents or athletic department sources say, we haven't considered playing in the spring. We don't know what, what, what that would look like. Um, we haven't considered not having fans in the stadium uh, this football season. Like, where have you been? for the past three or four months to at least not have plan B and, and plan C set up. I understand if you're still hoping on plan A, uh, I want, I would have, I was hoping for college football in front of fans. Um, I was hoping the rest of the country would get their selves in gear and, and start wearing masks and limit the virus in the country. You know, I was hoping plan A would work out too, but to not have plan B and plan C is, you know, Rather embarrassing for, for all these people that get paid all, all this money to, to come up with plans. Chris, one thing that's going well, knock on wood, is the Carrier Dome renovation. We can literally see it happening before our very eyes. It's open air, and you can look in there, and there's been some great visuals, including uh, some stuff that we've gathered at Syracuse.com and what Syracuse University has put out there. So with a month to go to the season starts, a month in change until that scheduled home opener against Wake Forest, uh, it seems all is well with the with the dome renovation, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't like to play armchair psychologist too much and 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 judge what I what I'm perceiving as people's emotions. <laughs> but Pete Sala looked really, really relaxed um, the last time I talked to him. That's good. He was more relaxed than I've seen him in a year. Um, <laughs> you, you know, he deserves it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he says everything's on track. Um, their their completion date, you know. It is a week before um, Syracuse is now scheduled to open the season, so I have even an extra week of breathing room. Uh, the schedule pushed back. Um, everything is, is on track to be done, but that includes the roof, the video board, which, which Pete mentioned is the, the third largest um, four-sided video board in the country, uh, according to Dactronics. Now, part of that is because there aren't that many indoor football stadiums, uh, so it'll be really interesting to kind of see it in person. Uh, that certainly sounds pretty good. Uh, I know I'm looking forward to seeing it. And one last thought from you, Chris. Our colleague uh, Mike Waters reporting that Alan Griffin could be in the crosshairs at Indiana. Of course, he coached with Archie Miller before at Dayton. And you know, I, I guess on the surface, I'm not going to tell anybody what the better situation is for them personally. But if I'm stacking up assistant coach at Indiana, assistant coach at Syracuse, 
What's the better job there? I mean, there's financials and personal situations there, but on the surface, I, I, I don't think Indiana is what it used to be. I, I still feel Syracuse could be the better choice there. What do you think? Yeah, you know, uh, the the one thing I guess you, you worry about with Syracuse a little bit is where the head coach search goes in a couple of years, and if it's not kept in the Syracuse family, um, what does that mean? Whereas if you go to Indiana with Archie Miller, maybe long-term, uh, you have a little more certainty. Um, but it's also college sports, and Indiana can fire people pretty quick. Uh, so, so I don't know that anybody should be taking that into account. And I'm with you. Uh, I don't view Indiana as a notch above Syracuse. Uh, I think they're both kind of in similar places uh, right now. They've had incredible years. Um, they're incredibly historic programs. Um, they can recruit some of the best kids in the country. Uh, they're not exactly firing on all cylinders right this instant, but um, there's no reason to think they can be. They can't in the future. So, so I'm with you. I kind of view those things as two equal um, levels, you know, outside of money and kind of personal where you want to live and that sort of thing. Chris, always appreciate your time and your insight. Keep up the good work, my friend. A lot of interesting things to write about for sure, and we know you'll be all over it on Syracuse.com. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Brent. Uh, we were talking some SU hoops before the break there with Chris Carlson. On the surface, now this is just a report, Mike Waters reporting on Syracuse.com that Alan Griffin's been contacted by Indiana. He coached with Archie Griffin. It's natural. So uh, it's kind of the chain of events. Kentucky lost an assistant coach, and you know you play the six degrees of Kevin Bacon and who goes where. Now Archie Miller needs an assistant at Indiana because one of his assistants went to Kentucky to replace an assistant that went from Kentucky to the Knicks. Well, Griff coached with Archie for seven years. You look in your inner circle first. You talk to your friends. You talk to people you trust. Would you be interested? Now, on the surface, now this is all about personal preference, where you want to live. Certainly salary is a big consideration. One thing that Jim Beheim I think, has done a masterful job of is positioning himself in that the the sad, he, when you look at that USA Today database that comes out every year, Beheim is always like 49th on the list of paid coaches. He defers money to his assistants. I mean, Jim Beheim could walk in Wild Hack's office right now, throw his fist down, be like, give me $6 million a year, and he would deserve it, and he would get it. Mike Krzyzewski, I think, last check, makes about $8.5 million per year. Roy Williams, like the bigwigs, Bill Self. These coaches make five, six, seven million dollars a year, which in this post coronavirus world is going to be interesting. But then you get down the list, you see Bayheim's like a 2.1, 2.2, which again, I could live on that. You could live on that. We all could live on that, certainly. But you're like, wow, that's it from a sports context, 40 year plus head coach and what he's accomplished and everything. The reason they're able to do that is by design and to defer money to his assistants and you make up for that in other ways you make up for that in the money that is paid in endorsements that is paid from nike that is paid from your friends here at img right so it all balances out so if you're i don't know i'd have to look it up for reference but if you're asking me who would pay more as an assistant coach indiana or syracuse my guess would be indiana so money would be a reason to go working with archie again now if you just look at it from just an analytical position. When you look at the hierarchy of assistant coaches, 
If Syracuse decides, and boy, isn't this the evergreen conversation around here, but when the day comes that Jim Beheim moves on for one reason or the other, if they stay in the family, which I would, and don't take this personally if you're on the coaching staff or take this the wrong way if you're a listener of the show, I think that you're just doing your job if you're John Wildhack, if you look outside the family, if you look at the best possible candidates across the country. There's a lot of very talented coaches that could coach here with the facilities, with the ACC affiliation, with everything that Syracuse basketball is and could be successful. It's not a prerequisite that you played here and were an assistant coach here. I think that would be the preference. That's what the plan was before. Mike Hopkins and the family take over, and, well, we all saw how that worked out. And it worked out great for everybody, I think. But if you do stay in the family, I think the order of succession goes Autry, McNamara, Griff. Right? Like, Griff, is he ready to be a head coach yet? And working through and the recruiting and the process in which you go through to be a head coach. I think if you did stay in the family, that's the list. So if I'm looking at that and like, okay, well, am I ever going to be a head coach here at Syracuse? Not likely, unless you want to stay for a long time. If there's changes made, if somebody on that staff takes over and is not successful, and even in that case, if Autry took over and let's just say for argument's sake wasn't successful, you're not then going to go to somebody who was on his staff or was on the staff previous. That's just natural. You'd make a different change. So if you're Alan Griffin and you're happy being an assistant coach in Syracuse, New York, where he's got a great life, loves living here, the perks of the job, the money, the situation, then you just you, that's what you do. If he did take that job, and again, this is I have no inside information on this. It's just I mean, it's sitting right there. It's pretty obvious, I think. If you continue the pattern of staying in the family and hiring Syracuse coaches, well, Eric Devendorf's around, right? I have not talked to anybody about this. This is just me putting two and two together, and it's not that hard to do, frankly. So whatever Griff does, I wish him the absolute best of luck. And if he does take that Indiana job, I'll be rooting for Indiana because he's there. If he stays, fantastic. But if he does take that job... That's a five-minute transition. Hey, Devo, want the job? Okay, great. It's yours. Devo's earned that position. Devo has earned that position by working his way up the ranks, working. We've seen the videos. We've talked to Devo about it before. We know the passion. We know the insight into the game. But he has developed into a good coach. He's ready to make that next step. He's been on the staff before, was not in kind of an official assistant coach capacity. He did it at Detroit Mercy. Like He's ready. Devo's ready for an assistant coach position at the high level, Division I, ACC type. He's ready. It would be ideal if it was Syracuse. Like It was weird when he was in Detroit, and certainly understand why you do it. you got to get experience. Syracuse didn't have that position available, but if, if this is how it works out, and Griff takes that Indiana job, it'll be the quickest transition ever. And that's what you do. This isn't one of those a wide-scale approach and lots of can. No, you give Eric Devendorf that job.